morning. If you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5, we're going to continue our study here in our text and uh, give you a moment to find your place. And we're going to, we're going to dive right in because uh, this is a lengthy passage of scripture and I, I'm already starting at a disadvantage because you lost an hour of sleep. So uh, I hope I can hold your attention long enough to get through uh, this lengthy passage of scripture. And so it is uh, verses 19 through 47 that we're going to look at in John chapter 5. And uh, I tell you, what a, what, a, what a blessing and what a powerful passage the Word of God has uh, here for us here today. And so, we're coming off the healing of this, this man that spent 38 years lame, right? And that was the first part of chapter 5 that Trace preached last week. And it was this man that went down into the water, or was hoping to go down into the water to be healed, but nobody was there to take him. Remember the story? If you don't remember the story, I'll just quickly summarize it. Christ would meet with him. He would, he would receive Christ, understand that he uh, would be the one to heal him of this infirmity. And so we see that Christ does this incredible miracle. But, but oftentimes when Christ would do something special, something powerful, something miraculous, the critics would be right there on the peripherals watching and, and begin, to, uh, begin the attack, begin the uh, verbal criticism and assault on what he did and who he was. And so the, the passage of scripture here for us today is going to um, going to be really Christ's defense of this. He's going to just stand back and allow his critics to have, have their say. And you can see that in verse... Sorry, the wind is uh, wreaking havoc on my pages here. Um, we, can, we can see in verse 18, and I'll just read that to introduce... What is, what is really going to be Christ's defense. It says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he had broke the Sabbath, but also that God, that he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so here, here's, here's the reason for the defense. Here's the reason for the, the words that now follow. This would be Christ's responding to that. So I entitled the message today, Defense of the Sonship. And really the sonship points to beyond just to being, um, you know, we're all that have trusted Christ, sons and daughters of the living God. We know that is a biblical truth, but there is something unique about this sonship, sonship the only begotten Son of God. The, uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, is, is, is really a, a reference, I think, to to a greater reality, which is the deity of Jesus Christ. And so with that reality, with that truth, let's dive into our text here. In verse 19, it says, and Joseph, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, so uh, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son... And shows him all that he himself is doing. And a greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges not one, for the, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father, 
whosoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so Jesus Christ is going to, here again, defend this sonship. And so the message here today is going to be broken up into four parts. I'm going to read each section and then we're going to look at it so that we can try to keep things sorted and clear. The first thing that we're going to look at is, is the honoring of the Son. Verse 19 talks about this, this idea of an apprenticeship, right? And I think we're all probably pretty familiar with an apprenticeship. It's somebody that is going to be learning a trade. And Jesus Christ even grew up as a carpenter. And I'm not talking about his earthly father and that sonship here, just to clarify. It is, it is the heavenly father. So Jesus Christ is, is seeing, right, and then doing. That's the concept of an apprenticeship that is taking place here. We, whether Even as fallen parents and human beings, right, our children will do what we do. Now, I think sometimes dysfunction breeds dysfunction, and dysfunctional parents can breed that dysfunction into the children if, if they're not uh, uh, um, walking in a way that is healthy before those kids. Too many times I saw my kids in a, in a fit of misbehavior, and, and I thought, well... Taken after Joanne. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're taken after their father, um, and and I feel like I know where they learned that from. The apple did not fall far from the tree, you know. Um, but the idea of an apprenticeship or a biblical apprenticeship, um, or what we see here with the the heavenly Father, is Jesus Christ in eternity past was existent. It's when he came into the world, and we already studied that in John chapter one. He entered onto Earth's stage. Think about the earth as a state in which he spent three and a half years approximately of his life, and then, or 33 and a half years of his life. Three of it was vocational ministry that, that the Father had given him, and then he walks off, stage left. So, so, so when he turned past, he is observing his Father working, and that's what I'm trying to get at here. He understands, and it, it is inseparable. The purpose of the will of the Father is the purpose and the will of the Son. He is not simply a servant doing and obeying the will of the, of, of the master. He is the son who has I, I, the exact same mission and purpose as the father. It's inseparable. We can't pull that apart. We can't separate it because it is, it is crucial for our, for, for our understanding of what he's developing here. He is being accused as, of, of breaking the Sabbath and being a blasphemer for declaring himself to be the Son of God. That was an issue that, that he is he's not going to let slip. I, I think there's also an important statement, uh, not only in verse 19 about, about him seeing and doing, but in verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. Nothing is hid, nothing is a secret. The relationship is based on a loving father and, a, and, and son relationship. And I, I think it's fascinating. I think we should highlight this phrase here, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So there's going to be more that Christ will do, right? So if we're looking at the greater works, what has he done so far? What are the greater miracles that he's going to do? But, but we have to see what he's done so far. We ever talked about the water being turned into wine, right? We're talking about not natural things, not human things, but we're talking about supernatural things that only God can do, and, and then it would be manifest in the Son because God is, is, is using his Son, the Father's using his Son to accomplish these things. So water was turned into wine, right? We talked about that already in our study of John. We saw the healing of 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 the sun. I think I think I was gone that Sunday, but I think it was uh, probably in chapter 
four, possibly. We see the healing of the paralyzed man here, right? We see a little bit later on in the, in the, in the next chapter, I think it's chapter six, with feeding the multitude, taking you know a, a meal that was meant for a few and making it stretch to reach many thousands even. He would walk on water. That is not natural. I think he would have to be going about 60 miles an hour to be able to stay on water. And I think only a human being can maybe run 20 to 30 miles an hour. So we're talking about not something human, but something superhuman. Not something natural, but something supernatural. He's walking on water. He heals and cures the blind man of his, of, of, of his sight. And then he, the, the capstone, the seventh miracle recorded in the Gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus. And so when we read this... That the Father is going to do greater works through the Son, and 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 uh, one of them it is, is would even be like we saw in verse 21 here, raising the dead, giving life to the lifeless. But in 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 the fourth point in this section, or the third point in this section, would be that he would be the giver of life, and then he would be the be the judge. And and. Uh, if we, if we were to turn back into John chapter 1, verse 4, I think we can see this restated here. He is the ability, he has the ability, and he does possess the power to give life. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's not as if he is simply the... How can I explain this? The, the love that I have towards my wife and the, my wife has towards me manifested in life, right? That my children are the product of our love. The Father, in and of itself, Christ, in and of himself, has the ability to give life. There's a love for humanity, not just a physical life, yes, that's part of it, but there is a spiritual life, an eternal life that is that is wrapped up in those statements as well. Not only is the Son given the ability to give life and is the source of life, but so too does he have the power to judge. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, a cross-reference here for us as well for this idea of judgment. Um, See if I can find that quickly. Acts 17, verse 31. This is this was the uh, if you remember um, Mars Hill, where where there was these. There was a reference to the unknown God, and this is this is this is the context in which this is stated. It says, "Because he has appointed a day on which, and this is 1731 of Acts, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, in other words, God, by the man, capital M here, which would be Jesus, whom he has ordained and has given assurance of this to all by the raising from the dead." So, so the power of Christ to raise and to give life, the power of Christ to judge and have dominion, to have that authority is something that is given to him by the Father. And so as Christ makes his defense for his sonship, it's rooted in these things. He goes, I, I have observed and learned my, from my Father. I, I not only have done the works that my Father 
has done similar things in the past, but I, I will show you even greater things, even raising of Lazarus. And, the, and then he goes on to say, I've got the power to give life. And he goes, I have the power to judge. And he says in the last portion here that, that all that may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Judgment is given to him. Life and power is given to him that, that honor is due him. And so I think from, from, the, from the defense that Christ is given at this point, he's saying, you've not honored me. You don't understand me. You, you've rejected my authority. And, and, and what I begin to see is Christ begins to build this defense for himself. He turns as the accused to the accuser. He is the one that is... is Accused of being at fault, now he will be the one that will point out their faults and their deficiency. So it's this, it's an interesting court case where where all of a sudden sudden the the the, the, the situation takes a turn, and throughout all this you will begin to see the shift right to the end of this chapter. You will see where where that becomes clear, and so there is. There's a powerful statement here of his sonship and the honor that must be given to him because he is in that, in that prestigious position. Verses 24 through 30 give us our next section. So if the first one would be to honor the son, which they did not honor the son, would be an amplification, a clarification of the life and judgment that is through the son. And so let's, let's work through this. It says, truly and tru- to truly, truly, this is verse 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son, also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, and when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those that have done good to the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, I do, or I can do nothing. On my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, as we, as we look at this next section, I think it's, it's fascinating. It's broken up into two parts. I don't know if you heard the two key words that are in there. The hour is coming. It's stated twice, and I think that gives us our two sections. The first would be the hour is coming and now is, and the hour is coming, and this would be the second section, and it's still future. Okay, so just see that this next section here regarding the judgment and life that comes from Christ would be upon those uh, that we see here. So let's let's go back to verse 24, and I think it's in, it's it's important to highlight this. Whoever hears my word, right? Do you remember this story? And really, um, really, it was the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven. Remember how that that whole Sermon on the Mount unfolded? He was giving just just thought after thought, detail after detail, what what it meant to be to be 
kingdom-minded, you know, all this began with the Beatitudes and everything else, but it would come to the end, and he said with this final illustration, he says it's like two men building houses, right? One would be building his house upon a solid rock, and the other one would be building his house on the sand. The, when the storms and the rains and all this, this would come, the guy that built his house on the sand would, would find that that house would be ruined, and it was a metaphor to what life built is like either we can build a life on human philosophies on on shaky sand if you will and on stable surface or that we can build a life on the rock of Jesus Christ and when he finishes the sermon on the mount he, he says basically you know those that heard my word and did them were like the guys that built the house or was like the man that built his house upon the rock does that make sense so it's so important that we not only hear the word, but we believe. We not only comprehend what's being said, but we, we humbly accept it and integrate it as, as truth into our own lives. It's that repenting and believing, turning from our own way that's, that's, that's twisted by sin to trust in this reality that Christ is the giver of eternal life. And I thought it's fascinating here that... That when we believe, at that moment, we have eternal life, has eternal life. It's present tense. A lot of times we think of eternal life as some kind of future, future fairy tale world that we're someday going to. Yes, there are future implications to our eternal life, but the moment that we accept Jesus Christ is the moment that we have inherited eternal life. We just aren't there yet. Does that make sense? So please understand, if you have trusted Christ, that you are already a possessor and inheritance is yours through what Christ has said as we've applied it to our life. So the hour is coming and now is. Paul said today is the day, now is the time. This is the moment that we accept Christ. Is is the moment we hear it that we should be able to receive it. Don't procrastinate, don't post postpone. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anybody, and I, I don't know about you, but it breaks my heart to see people week after week just continuing life without Christ. You know, I, I, I've had many, even just this past week, visits of Marines that have walked into my office and say, hey, hey, Chaplain, can we talk? And the stories begin to unfold. Tragedy after tragedy. I am reminded, I, I would say almost daily, of the fragility of life. The briefness of our existence. Of, if vapor peering for a moment and passing away, this is something that shouldn't be taken lightly. That we need to understand that eternity is just maybe moments away for each and every one of us. So it's of greatest importance that we have this settled in our mind. Have I trusted Jesus Christ? Am I a possessor of eternal life? Not because of anything I've done, but because completely of what he has done, that I have humbly accepted and trusted him. And the product is eternal life. That's what it's saying here. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, has passed from death to life. What a blessed reality. I could tell you each one of these sections, and I, and I feel like I have to rush. And I want, to, I want to slow my spirit down because this is, is each one could be a sermon of itself. I was listening to Alistair Begg and he broke this whole section up into three sermons. It was like two hours of preaching. And uh, I thought, even then, 
there were ideas that he threw out there that needed further exploration. And that it was truth that I was like, there's more to it. There's more digging that can be done. But the reality is, is that our time is brief, and these are really should be homework assignments for you. I always think about preaching as like visit to Sam Club or Costco, right? You're walking up and down the aisles and you're sampling a little bit of this, sampling a little bit of that. That cannot be your main meal. That will not sustain you for a week. And what you get here from me is just like a little taste from Sam's Club or Costco. It means that during the week it should, should, it should excite an appetite for the Word of God and say, you know what, there's more to this. I'm going to make a note. That's why I appreciate uh, Mike's Fight Club where we go into a further d- just conversation about the Word because there's too much in this 35-minute period to fully understand. I mean, we have a God that is infinite, right? There is no boundary to Him. And we are finite. We have a limited capability. And just by nature, we're, 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 we're at a disadvantage. So the hour is coming and now is. Where are you at here today? And a pause and maybe... Maybe an invitation within the message to ask you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. To recognize all that he's done, his, his perfect life, his, his sacrifice, sinless substitute for us sinful human beings. He's provided the means to have a relationship with the Father forever, a place called heaven, eternal life. What will we do with that message? The problem is that these Jews, when they would hear these things... Would, would resist, which is no different than where we're at here today. These were very religious people, but they rejected the truth. Oftentimes we find ourselves in a very religious position, but have we accepted the truth? Because the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear Right? Didn't the Revelation, John, use that same idea? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We could have ears and not hear. We could have eyes and not see the things of God. I hope that today would be sensitive and in tune and in touch with what is being said here from the Word of God. Father is the source of life. He is the giver of life. He's given that to the Son, so the Son is able to give life also, not only to raise the dead like He did with Lazarus, but also to impart being born again into the family of God, being stamped with the spiritual DNA of our Heavenly Father, children, sons and daughters of the living God because of the work of Christ in our lives. It's funny because He said, In verse 20, I'm going to do greater works that you'll marvel. I I, I didn't mean to skip that earlier. And and the idea of just being in in amazement, you know, I think think far too many times Christ interests them. He was intriguing, but that's all it was. The intent of them marveling would hopefully bring about worship and obedience, and submission to that truth. Verse 28, it's, it's interesting because there's the phrase again, do not marvel at this. It shouldn't just, just stop them or stump them. It should activate their interest. 
for the hour is coming. And this is the future tense. So if the past tense was the hour coming or present tense and now is the time to receive Christ, this next statement is the hour is coming is not quite here. There's an hour of judgment that is still future. Again, another sober reality those that have yet to trust Christ because they will... You know, I, I don't I don't want you to miss this. The tombs are going to open. Those that are dead are going to become alive. There is going to be a resurrection to judgment. And at that judgment seat, you know, there are going to there's there's you either are or you aren't. You've accepted Christ and you're going to spend eternal life with God in heaven, or you're not. And if this is me preaching to the choir and everybody here is a Christian, great, but it should it should excite you and maybe activate your your desire to reach the lost because someday your loved ones, your co-workers, your family members are going to stand before God and there's a judgment that they will face. And Christ is at the, at the heart of that. A judgment to life, they both will be raised, right? And a judgment to death. And it's going to be based not upon their good works. I don't want you to think, well, if they did good in this life, no. It's not what it's saying. The product of our conversion that we already talked about, eternal life, salvation, is going to produce good works. And the product of disobedience is going to continue to allow the sinful nature to have its way and to produce evil works. And so when we revert verse, verse 29 and come, the, the, hear the voice and come out, and those that have done good, it really is the believer who has allowed the work of God and the word of God to have its way to the resurrection of life. And those that have done evil, it's the disobedient that continue in their sinful ways to the resurrection of judgment. And so Christ has been given not only sonship, but he's given the power to give life to judge. Do you see what he's doing here? He is giving a clear case for his deity, for his power in this life to do what he's doing. So we need to keep moving here. So the hour is coming and is, present tense, the hour is coming and not yet here. And that's still future for us is this judgment where the graves will be opened in the Dead in Christ will rise and will stand before God. Verse 31, he continues his case. And this will be where Jesus Christ calls his witnesses to the stand. These are four witnesses that are going to speak for him. Now in the rabbinical law or the form of, 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 of the, the, the Jewish reference to, to a legal case, nobody could maybe speak for themselves. So nobody could really stand up and witness to or testify to himself. They required the two or three witnesses. That's a whole other study. We can go back to Deuteronomy and look at that. But again, time does not allow us to, to, to read about that. I think the important thing is to recognize that it's there, recognize that it's a biblical precedent that is set in the, in the Jewish law. Christ isn't going to testify about himself. He's going to allow others to do it for him. So verse 31, it says, If I bear witness 
or if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, or you you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I'm going to stop there because I think the first testimony that we look at is this. It's John. It's John the Baptist's testimony. Now, now some would say, this verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. Some would say that that is the Father. And, and if that's your position, that's great because we know that down in verse 37 and 38, the Father will give testimony to Jesus Christ. Others would say that that is a reference to John. I'm not going to try to sort that out here today because both are referred to within the text. Either way, Jesus Christ is saying, I'm not going to testify to myself. I'm going to let these people testify for me. And so John the Baptist, let me just go right to him because I think that is the first reference here. And I thought it was interesting. John's testimony... Um, in verse 5, just look at that. It says, he was a burning and shining lamp. Did you catch the past tense reference to that? And it may be that very very much at this point, John's ministry has ended. John the Baptist may be beheaded already, or he is already in prison. So the, the idea is that John was, was, was a lamp, and I think this is fascinating. Think about the old days when you had a wick that, that would soak up the oil from 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 the vessel, and then the wick would light, right? But sooner or later, there's a lifespan to that, right? There's sooner or later an end to where that lamp will no longer burn anymore. It doesn't burn of its own, right? It's, it kind of reminds me of the sun. Not that we can see it or feel it right now, but, but the sun is out. And this is a perfect metaphor, you know. Sometimes life gets a little cloudy, but the sun is still out. Right? So just remind yourself that he, he still shines bright even in the, in the cloudiest of days. But that's not my point. The point is, think about the moon. How do we know that the moon exists? How do we see the moon in the darkest of night? It is a reflection of the sun. The moon does not have any ability to shine of itself. It shines because the first the sun shines. And even when we don't see the sun on the darkest night, praise God for the people that come in our lives that reflect the sun in those dark days. That's kind of what John was here. He was a lamp, not burning of his own ability. He wasn't self-illuminating like Christ, the light of the world. He was a lamp that drew from the source God himself. But his ministry was short-lived. It came and went. And you know, I appreciate the John the Baptist that are, that are in our world today, boldly speaking for the truth, standing up for what is right, empowered by the Spirit of God to say the hard things that people, and maybe even to live a, an obscure life, you know, with our, with our, our uh, camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey, saying things that are a bit surprising, shocking, but true nonetheless. We need pulpits filled with John the Baptist, not just preachers that want to entertain. Amen. We need people that will preach the truth and stay true to the Word of God. And even if their season is brief, Problem is, is that we sometimes follow men. And the problem with following men is men will come and go. 
Someday this pulpit may be empty and another person will come and fill it. But if we follow men, we come and go when men come and go. And that's what we see here, right? They, they, there was a sense that, that you were willing to rejoice in a while with his light. I think that was a tragedy. I think it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it, was, it was great they were following John the Baptist, but were they really obedient to the word that John the Baptist was preaching? I would say that was a smaller group, a smaller few. I think what's also interesting is the reference here in John chapter 1, if you go back a page, and he says that you sent witnesses, right? John chapter 1, verse 19, and now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So what we read here um, in, in the text that we just looked at about them, them inquiring bore witness of the truth. John bore witness of the truth because they sent Jews, sent these, these religious leaders to see and ask the question, who is Jesus? And chapter four, 1, verse 40, I thought, thought was interesting. I think it was verse 40, yep. And one of the two that heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, and followed him was Andrew, Simon's brother. He was first found, or I'm sorry, he was, he first found his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah, which is interpreted the Christ. So the Jewish leaders would, would struggle with accepting Jesus as the Messiah, but there was some that would, because of the testimony of John, receive him and accept him as Messiah. And so John is just, or I should say Jesus is just, identifying the fact that, that John's testimony was true. So you have the witness of John the, John the Baptist testifying to Jesus Christ, who he is. We also have the witness of the works of Jesus. And so if you look at verse 36, this is a testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So he, he's building. He goes, I don't just have John the Baptist's testimony testifying that I am who I, I declare I am. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. So, excuse me. So we have the witness of John the Baptist and we have the witness of the works of Jesus Christ. We know that greater works were coming, but even the works that he had done to this point were sufficient didn't Nicodemus in John chapter one verse or John chapter three verse two remember the story of Nicodemus? There was a man, as it starts in chapter three, and he, he came to Jesus and he he says, he goes, you know, who are you that you are doing the works that only God can do? So, so the works of Jesus Christ to Nicodemus were sufficient to convince Nicodemus that this was no ordinary man, and that's what Christ is building on here. He goes, my works aren't just Every average day works. They're, they're not natural activities. They're supernatural activities that have to be from God. And Nicodemus picked up on that. So John the Baptist testifies to Jesus Christ. The works that Jesus Christ has done and is doing and will do, again, even greater things that he's going to do, testify to who he is. The third witness would be the Father, 37 and 38. The Father has sent me 
has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, and his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What's interesting, there are many times in Scripture that the Father testified to Jesus Christ. Remember the phrase, this is my beloved Son and who I'm well pleased? That was at his transfiguration, it was at his baptism. We can even turn to 1 John, we don't have time, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, where, where even, even testifying in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ. There's an inner witness that's from the Father. So, recognize that it's John the Baptist's testimony. He calls John the Baptist to stand. He calls his works to the stand to testify to him. He calls the, the, the witness of the Father to testify to him. And then verses 30, 39 um, through 40, we see that the scriptures testify to him. And I think this is, is, is a very interesting indictment. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me pause there for a minute. Searching the scriptures because they think in the scriptures alone they have eternal life. It wasn't in the scriptures alone. People became very, the, the scribes became so meticulous in learning the word of God that they could say in Jeremiah, there's so many chapters in the book of Jeremiah. But they would say not only are there so many chapters in the book of Jeremiah, but in chapter 11 and and, and in the entire book of chapter of, of Jeremiah, there's there's X amount of words. X amount of verses. They would memorize the scriptures to the point that, that they would tell you what the middle verse was in Jeremiah. You know, they would have such a, a deep understanding of, of the word that they really misunderstood what the intent of the word really was. And it's a tragedy that they would have the scriptures. It's a tragedy that we have the scriptures. The people are more interested in their own competitive reputation for scholarship than obeying the revealed Word of God. The witness of the Word points to Jesus and they missed it. The witness of the Father pointed to Jesus and they missed it. The works of Jesus pointed to His, his deity and His sonship and they missed it. John the Baptist pointed to Christ and they missed it. You see how this is all developing really against them? That as he began to give his defense, he would be really on the offense and putting them in a defensive position. And you know what I find fascinating about this whole text? We get to chapter 6 and you never hear a response from the critics. Christ would shut their mouths with a strong defense of the word. And verses 41 to 47 is the last, and, and, and this is really just summary of what has been said. By the way, let me just pause for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 says that knowledge puffs up. And I think that's what we're really seeing here. The Jews had a very knowledgeable, in, in the sense of understanding of the scriptures, but they missed the scriptures' point. It was pointing to Jesus. You let the, the whole biblical narrative, and if people ask me, what is the Bible really all about? It's the fall of man. It's, it's, it's God's solution to the sin problem. And then God giving us a look into the future of what will happen to those that reject Jesus Christ and those that accept Jesus Christ. It's really quite simple. He is the hinge in which all of this pivots. 
and they missed it. And then as we begin to wrap this up, verse 41 to 47, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And this is where he's putting them on the defense. Watch the shift. It's his now pointed discussion at their failure. I don't receive glory from people. Back in verse 41, 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another? And do not seek the glory that comes from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, and on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And I want to say period. Mic drop, but it's actually a question mark. Question mark. And so um, he leaves him with that hard question. What are you going to do? I find it interesting that there are many cult leaders that come and go. Many religious leaders who, who maybe tickled the ears of the hearers, and yet they're gone. Receiving the glory of men, coming in their own name, and Christ stands apart. He's different, unique. He comes with a mission. It's not all about him. And so as he accuses them, and I think it's, he's going to accuse them before the Father. You see where it's the, now he's, he's on the offensive? It's not defensive? Moses. Who's, who's probably the, the, the most notable prophet in Judaism? It would be Moses, right? He was the one that went up to the mount. He was the one that received the Ten Commandments of God. He was the one that was there as mediator um, for them. The messenger, the prophet for the people. And he says, Moses believed me, Moses spoke of me, and you don't. You reject me. And so, verses 41-47 is really just the summary statements of their unbelief. And so as, as we think about application here, as we think about the conclusion of this message, and I appreciate your patience, I know it's cold, my nose is running, my hands are numb. But we push through because this is important, and I appreciate you, you, you hanging there with me. Well, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, I think this is just, just an incredibly powerful message on salvation. If we trusted Jesus Christ, maybe that's a place that we need to consider. Maybe you look deep within your own heart. Have I accepted Jesus Christ? Am I a superficial follower and religious person, or have I really embraced his sin solution, the Savior? Have I repented in my heart? Do I feel a deep conviction for my sin? Present tense, you can have eternal life. Maybe there's, there's this idea of honoring the Son. Maybe as a Christian you're encouraged because you, you, you have... A strong case here for the deity of Christ. Come to the conclusion that he is not just a man, he is the God-man. Another study that's worth looking into, and I didn't have time to look at it, but the reference to the Son of God here, 
And did you see the shift at one point where he called him the Son of Man? I don't think the Son of God is simply his deity and the Son of Man is humanity. It's more complicated than that. Because it seems like every time the Son of Man is referenced, it's something far beyond what humans are capable of. There's so much here. If anything, maybe this message is a catalyst, do you think, further and thoroughly through the passage. Have you trusted Christ? Are you here just gaining knowledge? Or is the purpose of studying the Word of God is to gain a greater relationship with God? There's so much here. Maybe there's something else that God touched your heart with that you're seeing as an application point. It's not just hearing but doing. So as we pray, maybe this is a moment for you to just turn these things over to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the word and, the, and this, this lengthy passage that is really one of the strongest personal statements that Christ had regarding his deity. And so, Father, thank you for not only the information that's contained here, but the challenge that it presents. So appreciate uh, the word, Father, I pray that you would work in hearts, change lives, and even as we transition into our communion service, that you would, you would prepare us to come before you in a way that honors you. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we pray your blessings in Jesus' name.